Hello and welcome to Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast with me, Anthony MacDonald, Professor of Human Resource Management. Each week, I find out some of the new and groundbreaking research and ideas from Cubs lecturers that are making an impact on society in Ireland and abroad. From business to Brexit, management to marketing, we're bringing you fresh perspectives and different ways of thinking here on the Insights podcast. And on this episode, we're going to discover more about the PhD journey from three PhD candidates at UCC, whose research covers social entrepreneurship in the Ballyhora, rented land, and the artisan and craft food sector. Apart from the topic itself, let's find out also about the highs and lows of PhD research, what drives people on, and what their hopes are for their future careers. Mara Van Driver, Tracy Bradfield, and Connor Drummond, welcome to the show. We might find out from each of you about your PhDs and start with you, Connor. Um, you're funded by the Irish Research Council. Maybe you might just talk a little bit about what is your PhD about. So my PhD is focused on, I suppose, business-to-business marketing, uh, using social media um, kind of as a networking tool, really, for um, entrepreneurial firms. So what I've been looking at for the last couple of years is how craft breweries and craft food firms within the Irish context are using social media in kind of you know innovative, collaborative ways to develop their business networks. Um, and a really important concept for my PhD is looking at the idea of resource mobilisation, so how firms actually mobilise vital resources in order to develop their businesses into what would be considered established businesses. Um, so that's what I've been looking at for the last couple of years because I suppose my own background professionally is looking at kind of social media um, and digital marketing. So I was doing consulting for a number of years and I realised that within the field, especially for smaller ventures, because that's kind of what I was working with, they just didn't realise the potential that that tool had um, or social media platforms had at all. So that's kind of how it led me on to doing the PhD and the academic side of things, yeah. Okay, so we, like we hear an awful lot about marketing marketing and social media nowadays. Um, typically, that seems to be always on a consumer level. So the business-to-business piece, is that something that there isn't enough of? Or how are... What, what have you found, I guess, around this area? Yeah, um, definitely. I think... Um getting nabbed for the PhD early on by my own supervisor she kind of said you know there's a huge um, lack of empirical uh, research in that area Um, it was all focused for the last couple of years really up until I started the PhD on the consumer focus uh, the B2C element as we call it the B2B or industrial marketing element was just hugely neglected because a lot of B2B practitioners or people who would be in that kind of area just didn't recognise it as something that held any value many of them considered it a fad really something that was just a trend and was going to go away but obviously it hasn't I mean um, you can just look around you it's it's now within all of our daily lives um, and within relationship marketing between different people and organisations. It, it's now become a central premise. And I think it's it's developing and evolving all the time. You know, most social media platforms would be in eternal beta. You know, they're constantly changing and evolving and used for different things. And it, it's become so dominant within a business-to-business context that, um, you know, I think I'm finding huge, you know, I suppose um, the research that I'm doing, um, people are really recognising that it is, it's important, you know, um, especially for a smaller venture because obviously these kind of platforms give them huge uh, marketing ability that they would not have without it you know traditional marketing they just wouldn't have access to it finance financially couldn't have access to it so that's kind of one of the main things i've seen is that it has become way more embedded in a business-to-business context over the years and uh, yeah it's, it's good for me obviously then with the research it, <laughs> mm. it holds promise yeah and, and the craft brewing and artisan food industry which seems to have become very big in this country um over the last decade um why why that focus 
Um, why that focus? Um, I suppose really for for me, obviously as a passion project with the, the PhD, it was an area I was very interested in. Uh, craft food and breweries were some of the ventures that I briefly worked with very early on when I was doing consulting. Um, it's also one of my own supervisors' areas as well with craft breweries. Um, so it, they kind of naturally led into it. But one of the main reasons behind it was, as you said, the huge expansion in the last number of years. A lot of smaller ventures have popped up. It's particularly in the craft brewing sector, really, because I think Ireland has traditionally had a very strong food focus anyway. Um, you know, the emergence now of like food, uh, farmers markets and kind of smaller food festivals and obviously people becoming more orientated towards lower food miles and things like that um, have, have led that naturally. But the craft brewing side of things, really in the last couple of years, you know, people have talked about how important now that uh, smaller craft breweries have become um, in terms of the, the Irish economy. We're moving towards gin now as well, but um, I mean, even in the last four or five years, you've gone from 20 odd craft breweries to nearly 100, which is a huge expansion, I mean, for any industry. So that was a really interesting context to have a look at and see how have these firms that are you know just being created using social media um, to develop their, their businesses more, because they're obviously being developed in an era we call the social media age as it is. So that was a really interesting conce- uh, context to study. And so I think, yeah, like by any stretch of imagination that numbers is very impressive so is th- is it getting to a scale issue or is you know d- does it become a concern where actually it becomes too much or is there still a long a lot of growth possible in the, in this domain because it, they do seem to be popping up which may be linked to social trends around you know less focus on drinking loads and loads and actually paying for better quality and that experience yeah definitely and i think you hit the nail on the head there you know people again willing to pay a bit more for a quality um experience i suppose coincides a bit with the turnaround the economy as well anyway which is um, a reflection on it um yeah I, th- I think at this point in the last year or so i think it's slowed down in pace like obviously would be up to date with the numbers in terms of some of the microbreweries developing a number have closed down as well a lot have been consolidated and particularly talking to a lot of these craft breweries obviously as part of the research they would be talking about how a number of their business colleagues have closed down in relation to just not being able to survive you know there's possibly too many so I think there's been a bit of a shift now towards okay how can we develop the firms even more consolidate the national market and go internationally so exports now is becoming kind of a bit more dominant for them and I think a lot have highlighted how important the likes of local enterprise offices and um, you know Enterprise Ireland and all those kind of uh, different governmental organisations are becoming in terms of getting them ready for export obviously unfortunately Brexit and things like that it's it may have changed things a bit but um, it, there's a bit more of an emphasis on collaborating internationally as well which is where I think some of this research is becoming more interesting in terms of how can we use social media for developing international networks and relationships as well so that's something I'm interested in going forward so the the role of social media um, for these businesses maybe you talk through as in how useful it is because I guess there can be a perception maybe that it's more a distraction than an actual useful business tool yeah absolutely um, and I think that that is important to note that a lot of smaller businesses either perceive it to be a distraction from the main business activities that they have or in fact that they don't really realize some of them that they're using it quite innovatively so one particular um, element that I've looked at in in the last couple of months especially towards the end of the PhD has been on collaboration so how you know craft breweries predominantly are using it to develop kind of collaborative brews for example so there's a few interesting um, I suppose contexts where I've looked at um, really interesting uh, elements of social media where it's the main communication and it's the main reason behind why two businesses two craft breweries in different uh, countries are actually developing a product together and they've done all of the product development all the innovation over that virtual environment which is really really interesting obviously there is an element of potentially then meeting in a traditional space as well craft brewing festivals or different events but predominantly if without those social media platforms they wouldn't have that element and it introduces 
I suppose the 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 products of both companies to different international markets and that for me is, is one particular example that has been you know demonstrating just how powerful it can be uh, can be if used correctly by these firms so kind of what I'm doing at the moment towards the end of the PhD obviously there's a, n- a number of elements to it but is to look at how social media then can be used in a more effective collaborative way how can other firms replicate this to develop their own international markets as we're going forward and um, obviously the national market is important too but you know for the likes of if you're um, uh, an American uh, craft brewery collaborating with an Irish craft brewery, you know, again, if you can introduce each other's products to the opposite markets, that, that's a huge thing, you know, it's, it's really important for smaller firms to mitigate what would be um, an issue in a national market, for example. Again, bring up Brexit, if sales go down all of a sudden, if you have an international market to rely a bit on, you know, sales, that, that is important, you know, um, and especially for ventures that are only maybe four or five years old, that's, that's crucial, you know. So that's one particular example, I would say, where social media has definitely shown, for me anyway, empirically, that it can be used for something a bit beyond just a communications tool mm. as it would be viewed normally. So if there was a small business owner listening in to this podcast and they're keen on exploring social media but they don't have a clue, how how would you advise them to maybe go about it or, or learn about it? Is there a particular way that they can uh, read my that? research? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think really a lot of it comes down to um, going past the barrier of, oh, look, it's just a supplemental thing. You know, it, you do have to view it I suppose as a vital activity for a business it's not going away it's not like the internet and social media and things like that are going to disappear that they're a fad or a trend which is something that unfortunately has been quite dominant through a number of smaller businesses if you view it as something that is essential to your business and you know even if you're taking an hour or two of your day to develop it if possible or with a number of really really interesting entrepreneurial firms have actually started to hire their own marketing personnel specifically for that area um, and develop those relationships if you're able to kind of do that and build them up slowly over time you will realise some, um, I suppose, advantages or things we talked about there in terms of collaboration going forward, getting from just an initiation to how to, how would you develop a relationship? It's common to do it now over social media and bring it forward to maybe collaborating and to develop a product, you know, those kind of elements. But yeah, they're kind of some of the areas that I would say would be important for smaller ventures, definitely. So maybe then turning um, to, to you, Mara, um, and I guess it's not a million miles away in terms of a, of a, of a size and context. Uh, we're still looking at a at small enterprise, but you're you're looking at the area of social entrepreneurship and you're specifically looking at the Ballyhora development area. Maybe you might talk through, maybe first of all, what is social entrepreneurship? Because I think it's a term that we're beginning to hear a little bit more about. Yeah, indeed. It's, a, it's definitely a term that's becoming uh, more popular nowadays. Um, yeah, social enterprises are actually uh, enterprises that combine a very strong social mission uh, with trading aspects. So in terms of mission, you could almost compare them to, to uh, non-profit organizations, but in the way um, they go about um, um, after that mission, in the way they try to fulfill that mission, uh, they are more business-like. So they uh, have an ongoing aspect of trading or selling goods, selling services, and they can actually make a profit, but most of that profit, or actually very often all of that profit is actually reinvested back into that social mission. So their main um, their main goal in that sense is not to make profit for their owners, for the shareholders, but to have uh, a social impact. Uh, and indeed, I look at um, social enterprises within the Ballyhara region here in Ireland. Um, so the Ballyhara region is the area in um, the north of Cork and the east of Limerick that's surrounding the, the Ballyhara mountain range there. Uh, and it's a rural area uh, comprised of a lot of um, uh, small uh, communities um, and they use social entrepreneurship as well 
um, to fulfill, you know, some of the needs that are there that are not met by um, either the state or by um, uh, by private providers. Okay, so the Ballyhower development, as you said, you know, on the borders of a few counties, how does a, a woman, young woman from um, the Netherlands end up studying the Ballyhower? Tell me, how does that happen? Yeah, how does that happen? Um, well, it starts with, uh, with a vacancy you find uh, online. Okay. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, I know it's actually uh, Bellihara Development, they're the local development company uh, that services that area. Um, and um, University College Cork are both part of a research consortium uh, called Rerection. Uh, it's an international consortium made up of different research institutions and social enterprises throughout Europe. And they got f- funding from um, Horizon 2020, uh, Marie Slodowska Curie uh, program. Um, so they got to employ um, 10 PhDs in total, of which one was uh, in the Ballyhara region. And uh, I was lucky enough to be able to get that position. Okay. Very good. And in, in the kind of extent of, you know, the idea of rural and rurality, is, 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 there, is it similar between Ireland and the Netherlands from your experience? Or is it a, are these entirely different concepts or, or, or contexts? No, it's different. And I think rurality uh, is different everywhere. Um, if you only look at, for example, the um, uh, population density of the Netherlands and Ireland, in the Netherlands, there are 400 inhabitants per square kilometer. Uh, here in Ireland, we live with uh, just 70 per square kilometer. So that alone is a, is a huge difference already. Uh, which doesn't mean that in the Netherlands there aren't rural areas or there aren't rural areas um, which face challenges. Like, believe it or not, even there we have um, small communities that deal with broadband issues. Uh, but even though the, the problems might be the same, I think the dynamics of, of the rural regions is different in general. Um, and that means that also the, the scale and uh, the feasibility of certain solutions might be different. Uh, but I think that's not only between countries, even within countries, that can make a huge difference. And you have to be mindful of uh, the specific locality, the specific community um, or uh, area that you work in. For example, if you have a community shop and you um, try to um, get money in from uh, people um, other than your community, if you count on that for your business model, it makes a big difference if you're located on or near a national road instead of being somewhere um, 20 kilometers down uh, local roads. Uh, so you have to be mindful of um, the specific context that you deal with all the time. Yeah. And is, is, there, is there a difference to kind of, you know, that said social entrepreneurship? Is, that a, is there growth in that as an area across countries or is, or is it confined to particular types of countries in Europe? No, I think it's something that um, the European Union in general um, sees potential in growing um, this sector. Uh, so it's not only in Ireland. Like if we look in Ireland, um, there is definitely a lot happening at the moment with the government also realizing the potential of social enterprises um, and um, putting out uh, studies to actually map the, uh, the size of the sector here. Uh, but it's also done on a European level. And, for example, the European um, Commission estima- estimates that at the moment uh, around 6% of uh, GDP in Europe is uh, going uh, is coming from social enterprises and they actually want to grow that to 9% um, over the coming years. So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of potential um, in the sector. Um, and I think also a, a challenge to not only look at those um, economic figures if we look at the sector, because in the end... It's the social impact these organizations try to um, try to realize 
that's their reason um, of being. And they can have a very, very small turnover or uh, generate a very small profit, but the day-to-day impact that they have on, on people's life and the positive change they can make in that, um, I think that's where the great potential of the sector is. And um, yeah, it is a challenge to to capture that social impact and not only look at the, the economic measures. And can you say a little bit about that? How, how is that impact? Because I'm here listening and I guess back to, you know, we have a danger always if we always yeah. go to hard quantitative metrics economics and um, but clearly the i suppose the ideal behind these enterprises is far broader so what are the types of mechanisms i guess that we can capture that type of impact yeah i think that's a um, that's a really difficult question there are different initiatives going on like you have social return uh, on investment different methodologies that have been developed to capture that social impact but still they try to translate it into some kind of number um so i think up to date does not uh, uh, one good solution to really capture the qualitative aspects of that as well. I think that really comes down to um, looking at the initiatives and looking at the human sides um, of those initiatives. And what I said in small rural areas, for example, um, it can make a huge difference if you just employ maybe two or three people. Um, whereas from maybe a government perspective, if you would compare that to initiatives in the city, um, you would say, okay, just two, three people, that's not enough. You know, this is not something we will fund. Um, so I guess it's, you know, it's going out there, it's showing the day-to-day uh, change these organizations yeah, really make in the lives of people. Um, and it's a challenge, I think, for researchers as well to work on how we can be able to capture that. And is the trigger for this being, because I suppose, listening, how, is, how has this grown so much over time? Is this Is this partly linked to government failures and inactions in terms of you know rural communities feeling left behind and they ultimately it's back to the idea of volunteerism in the community to actually access or get these services and supports together or how, how i suppose what what's the what lies beneath the rise of these social enterprises yeah i think definitely um there's a big aspect of that like you know communities um see they miss out on a lot of stuff and they see people move out they see um, their community uh, dying and they want to do something about that. So very often, I think it's not so much um, based on an opportunity they, they see do do something entrepreneurial, but it's more based on this direct need that they feel and they don't see another way um, to do it. And I think that's something that's also important in the discussion around social enterprises, because of course they do a lot of good work. But I think it's also up to us as researchers to show that you know, maybe it's not only um, uh, this wonderful story of look how these communities uh, come together and organize a lot of stuff. We should also look at the causes. Why do they need to undertake these um, initiatives? And we should be very mindful of the fact that um, in a lot of the rural social enterprises, it's actually still for a big part the time and effort of voluntary people from that community that goes in to keep the initiatives running. Uh, which can lead to serious things like um, burnout, uh, a lot of stress for the people involved in that community. They feel a lot of pressure to make it work for the other members in their community. Um, yeah, so that's definitely one side of social enterprises we need to uh, look into as well. I think it's a really interesting point because I guess we we tend to obviously to focus on the positive stories yeah. always. So I, presumably now that you talk through that, there is it must there must be a lot of these social enterprises ultimately fail as well. 
Um, Absolutely. And yeah. I suppose why why is that? And I guess I suppose turning that into what what are the key lessons that people that are looking to maybe be involved or to establish a social enterprise, what should they be looking at to try and avoid those pitfalls? Yeah. Yeah, it's indeed very much a feel good concept now, but it's like any other enterprise, setting up an enterprise is really difficult, whether you do it with a social aspect uh, or not, and finding a way to sustain yourself in the long run um, is just a very complicated uh, thing and a very time-consuming thing. I think every entrepreneur um, will tell you that. Uh, and especially in a small rural community, because if you look at all the literature on rural entrepreneurship, for example, you see that those rural environments are very often described as hostile environments for entrepreneurial activities. Um, well, these social enterprises, by combining it with that big community aspect, they seem to be able to find a way to adapt um, to that capacity. So one of the things that's really important for them is to link with the community, but not to overburden the community. And that's a pitfall that you very often see happen, that it are a few very um, interested uh, individuals very passionate that set it up um, but then once they uh, retire or uh, move on otherwise there's a big gap and it becomes very hard to sustain that initiative so I think you know in terms of the pitfalls um, it's very important that there's a, um, a broad uh, a broad base within a community that can support the organization so it's not just down to these one two or three um, individuals but a bigger group um, you can work with uh, and it's very important to make connections to the outside world as well because often there's not enough assets within the area um, alone so it's very important to network to learn from other communities um, that might be in the same situation so you know even though the focus is often very much on the local needs broaden up uh, and look at external uh, lessons you can learn mm. as well and is there a particular type of person or profile or personality that tends to be involved in setting these up as and is it these highly altruistic type of people I suppose back to what what are the motivations that people adopt to actually put in this you know voluntary time to um getting these enterprises up and running because as you said there's obviously so much time and effort required presumably also obviously a lot of rewards in the context of that social doing well piece but you know what is do we, do we know much about why these people do it um, well, the people I've come across so far for my for my research, um, I must say they are really passionate about either um, the locality that they're in uh, or a certain problem. It's very often due to personal experience uh, that they want to act. Um, so you see that besides um, being people that are usually very active in their community already, they have this one deep um, passion that they really want to act on and they try to mobilize uh, people for that. Okay, very interesting. So then I suppose we've the Ballyhora ranges and that's the idea of land to moving maybe to, to you, Tracy, and, and you're looking at the area of um, dairy farmers and uh, rented land. Maybe you might just talk through what, um, what is your PhD focusing on? My PhD looks at issues, particular agricultural uh, land market. So it's an interesting time to look at this area because we're post um, milk quota. So the milk quota was abolished in 2015, which means now farmers are free to produce unlimited milk. There's also new tax incentives in place. So in 2015, the income relief on or sorry, tax relief on rental income was increased. So this is to encourage long term leases. So now a farmer can rent out their farm 
rent out land on their farm for 15 years or more and they will gain income relief of uh, €40,000. So this is to encourage farmers to rent out their land, gives them a little bit of extra income and encourages uh, farmers then to rent in their rent inland knowing they can have it on a long-term lease. So this gives them incentive then to invest in their land and to gain greater profitability. So at the moment, Ireland has low percentage of uh, transfers of land each year. It's less than 1%. It's incredibly low. The main sources are inheritance, uh, which is natural. We all know cases of where a family, um, someone has either retired or passed away and they've transferred land to a relative. And Ireland is also synonymous with low levels of rented land. So at the moment, 17% of all agricultural land is rented, which is the lowest in Europe. This compares to an average of 55%. The highest then would be in Eastern Europe, say Slovakia, where 89% of land is rented in. So we have a big difference. We have very little transfer of land in Ireland. And if you think about it in contrast to other types of resources, say labour resources, if a company wants to hire more employees, they can easily do this by advertising and sourcing new employees. Farmers are limited. They're limited by the supply available. If they want to access extra land, it's difficult for them to do so because farmers aren't willing to rent out their land. So that's what I'm initially looking at for my PhD. And is that something that is improving notwithstanding the low levels maybe it's at because I suppose it's back to you know I think we've heard a lot I guess over the last number of decades of you know the number of people involved in farming potentially dropping off which presumably means that some land holdings and farms are increasing in size. Sales not so much okay. that's very very low okay. uh, I think it's 0.3% of actual sales as a percentage so that's remaining low the rented land is increasing that's gradually increasing since about 2015 that's when the new tax incentives came in place so and that has shown benefits for the renting in farmer so the first paper of my phd is looking at the benefit in terms of profit for those farmers renting in land and it's shown that farmers who rent land are generally bigger on average they're producing more milk per cow which means they're more efficient in terms of their output and they're creating generally um, an average higher profit so it's working out favorably favorably for the rented in farmer Okay, so and why why do we think that is in terms of those that are is that rent is that just because productivity because it's been treated more as an enterprise or what are the reasons behind? I think it's due things? to opportunity costs. So mm. if farmers willing to take on a lease and pay for it, they're going to make sure that if they're using their land, they're going to get the most production out of it. As opposed to a farmer that owns their land, they may have inherited it. They may have a large farm, only need say half of it or not all of it. So some of the land is like idle, so they're not maximising their output. They're not maximising their profitability. Where in terms of a renting farmer, if they're going to undergo the cost of renting in land, they're going to be sure they're making the biggest profit out of it. I've also found that the people, the farmers deciding to rent in land, they have high percentage of these farms have a successor. So that means they have someone in line to take over the farm and therefore having extra land gives them the opportunity to work on the land until they become the owner. So there's that opportunity as well as in developing skills and access to greater land to use those skills. Okay. So in the context of those that are renting land, is that still very much predominantly in the family situation? Or are we seeing any kind of evidence of people, you know, I suppose, renting land for to get into this farming industry that may not have this background in farming. Yeah, that would be interesting. I haven't measured okay. that. That would be interesting to see a transition. There is definitely a transition from farmers that were traditionally tillage to dairy. That's because dairy now is so much more profitable because we're uh, post the quota abolishment. In terms of going into farming, a totally a total change or transition, I haven't looked at that. Right. That would be interesting to see. And, you know, I suppose this part of the, the post-milk quarter, and I was recently down in Chagask um, myself, learning a bit about some of this. And I, I was fascinated in terms of the, the stark differences and the, the way essentially the industry has just exploded. Um, what problems or challenges is that bringing in? And is that, can that be linked to, um, I guess, this area of 
space and and land because you know I, I think you know last year I think when we'd uh, our much vaunted summer which seems to be lacking this year but you know there seemed to be this concern ultimately that part of the issues were linked to the increase in um dairy herds and ultimately you know issues with grass and and um, food it, it, how does this all tie together i guess and um, because are, are they scaling up too quickly because some farmers because they don't have the land or how you know, uh, what are the key th- lessons here i think the transition to increased rent land is slow given the massive incentives to increase uh, your land supply. So I think it's very much a farm by farm case where they make a decision what's best for them, given the resource they have, maybe with success or um, given their herd size as well. I think it's very much a case by case assessment. Issues may arise in negotiating a price, I feel. A price you might negotiate it for a lease in 2017. You would have got a great return because 2017 was a very productive farming year. 2018, you would have been very disappointed. So I think negotiating a price will be a tricky issue. But again, that's very much a case-by-case basis. Mm. And are, are, are when we when we talk about the transfer of land, is that for, are they long, very long leases or how does that work? Uh, it's very short leases. Short Majority leases, okay. are 11 months, which is Conacre system. Uh, the average for my research is 2.4 years. Okay, So that's very, very low, given the greatest tax incentives is 15 years or more, which provides security for the renting in farmer and then a tax benefit for the renting out farmer. So we, we do have a long way to go in terms of transition to increased rental rental agreements. Definitely. And are we seeing much evidence that, you know, you know, the, the 11 months continues or the two, 2.4 years? Are we, are we seeing that actually people are... No, no, no more rental after short periods of time, or is that just kind of just the nature of it's very regular negotiation? It's it's ongoing, so it's rolling eleven months. It would be, I suppose, to some extent, maybe informal agreement that it's a given that it rolls onwards year to year. I very much be a neighbour relationship as well that farmers be renting off their their neighbours. So again, it between themselves, but it would be very much rolling rolling agreement. And are there any incentives there provided to try and improve? I guess this this area because I think again, you know being down in Chagas recently and um, speaking about the average you know the the average age of of farmers this country is is phenomenally high um so there's obviously a major succession challenge and obviously this is potentially one way of of addressing some of this by having greater um movement in in the ownership of land um is there any incentives at a governmental level around this and are they working the the tax incentives for the renting out of land would be the biggest uh, initiative so that was increased in 2015 so four years on we're still looking to see how much of a benefit that would generate has shown some benefit it'd be great if it increased we still have very low percentage of rent land 17 percent compared to the eu average of 55 percent so there is definitely room for improvement in terms of people renting out their land. It's people who have idle land, maybe retired in that they haven't identified a successor, as you mentioned. So they've no option actually just to rent out their land and I suppose maybe push the, the problem down the line a small bit until a successor is identified. So that's they're the people generally renting out their land or else people that just need the extra income as well. So do we is is those that are renting out is that still more on almost forced or semi forced and I mean that in the context of its you know age yeah, succession as opposed to you know maybe proactive strategic decisions is that this could, is best yeah, happened well it could be okay. that would be an issue it'd be great if people could if farmers could identify their idle land or their underproductive land and then transfer through rent agreements to more productive farmers that's the economic output and the government wants to achieve which I would like to find in my research findings is that land is being transferred into the hands of the most productive farmer 
and that's generating an increased return, increased profitability, and then a greater output as well in terms of milk production for Ireland. Okay. So, you know, why why was this a topic that you decided to pursue? Okay, so I was I was very lucky with this topic. My supervisors here in Cork University Business School identified the topic and found funding through Chagask. Uh, they advertised it and then I interviewed for the position. Uh, it's a topic I'm really interested in. I'm from an economics background myself and I'm interested in food and agriculture. So being able to link the two was, uh, was the appeal for me. It was a very interesting topic. So why a PhD then? Why did you want to um, pursue a PhD? I suppose I was lucky enough to have taught tutorials during my master's and I always liked research and college experience overall. So I'd definitely like to pursue an interest or a career in academia. Uh, going forward or definitely in the area of research i think it's very worthwhile to to work on a topic i'm interested in and to have that kind of concept of self-management and i suppose we're lucky that with a phd the topic changes you can create new ideas you can bring in extra top extra research questions and develop the area myself which is the interest to me so i'm definitely interested in pursuing a career at academia okay maybe that's a similar question to maybe to you mara um about that um why why a phd and why here after my uh, writing my master thesis, I found out that I really liked that research uh, part, but I also was very interested in finding out a bit more about life outside academia. So I actually worked for a couple of years, uh, and one of the last jobs I had was um, in the Dutch Institute for Applied Scientific Knowledge. So I really worked on that boundary between um, theory and practice there. What we did there was try to translate... Um, academic knowledge into something that organizations can really use in their day-to-day business. Um, And I found out there that, you know, if you really want to develop your research skills and be taken seriously as a researcher, uh, a PhD is the way to go. Um, Plus, I think it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really make a deep dive into um, into a certain topic, especially if that's a topic of your interest, like I don't think there's any other time in your life that you have the resources uh, and the time available um, to build on, uh, really build on generating new knowledge like this. Um, So why here? Yeah, because I think the the setting here with um, the great structure of the business school here in um, UCC, there's a lot of um, good supervision. There is a lot of training um, and seminars that are organized that give you the opportunity to connect to colleagues, to get feedback on your work. Um, for me, that European consortium uh, is a great added bonus because through that, I have the experience of um, you know nine others who started around the same time on a similar topic, um, have similar experiences to what I have. So that's a great um, help as well. There are training sessions again organized through that consortium. So, you know, that whole package of um, getting that opportunity to make that deep dive, but in a very stimulating setting, um, yeah, was what really drew me to this position. Okay, and Connor, why a PhD? Um, yeah, and I suppose a lot of points that I'd make would be kind of harping on what um, the two girls said as well, especially Mara there in terms of, I suppose, really taking a deep dive into something. I mean, personally for me, I was always probably academically inclined, you know, enjoyed that kind of experience of reading and continuous learning and trying to, you know, develop knowledge as well, obviously, is, is a key aspect. If you can make contribution in those areas that you're passionate about, you know, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity. Um, and I think for a PhD, particularly if you're, you know, a bit you know, self-determined or you have kind of a bit of self-discipline in terms of wanting to be able to uh, develop that kind of knowledge and work on a passion project. It gives you that huge flexibility. You know, as I said, again, there's, you know, great resources here in the business school as well. I suppose I am 
one of those people who's come through the whole system. I was here as an undergrad, you know, started an MSc here, went into a PhD, so I've been here for a while. Obviously, I've spent time in other colleges as well in between, but, you know, you see that that element there is where there is really good resources here to be able to actually go and embark upon the PhD um, itself. And I really think, look, again, it, it's a fantastic opportunity to really, as I said, take a deep dive into um, something you're really passionate about. In my own background, I was really interested in how smaller entrepreneurial firms develop and obviously the social media element of it came together. The industry context as well were something that I was involved in. So, you know, bringing all that together and working on something in, in depth for a number of years, um, you know, has, has really been fantastic. And I suppose outside of that as well, recognising the aspect of, you know, working with other researchers, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of being able to travel a bit during my PhD time and work with kind of other academics internationally across Europe, um, Australia, America and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's a great experience. I mean, there's, there's not many other jobs where you get that level of flexibility to, to create those networks as well for yourself going forward. So, yeah. It's all really positive stuff, really, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so you're selling definitely lots of positive um, reasons behind why you do a PhD. So um, the PhD is always viewed as a as a journey with um, ups and downs. So talk to me a little bit about um, some of maybe the, the challenges or the lows. Um, maybe start with you, keep with you, Connor, on this in terms of, you know, some of those challenges... Um, the obstacles, perhaps, that you that, that that inevitably happens during a PhD. Yeah, yeah. Start with the person who already finished and probably has the, <laughs> the worst view of it. Um, no, and I think you know, spot on there with highs and lows. Um, the best analogy that was ever spoken about to me when I was starting out the PhD was by re researchers in here saying, "Look, it's very similar to a roller coaster. If you view it that way, there are so many ups and downs and loops, and you think you've taken one step, two steps forward, and you actually taken about ten steps back. You know, you open up different kinds of worms. It it's it's one of those journeys that really is just so individualistic. You know, um, no two PhDs are the same, and it is an individual journey. Even if you're surrounded by different researchers or colleagues, it it can get a bit lonely as well in terms of you know that element of it. And I suppose that's one of the the lows is that you know obviously it's it's highlighted well with academia that it can be quite mentally draining and there's that issue of you know mental health and stuff as well so I think one thing for me is that obviously the lows are if you're one of these people who's very critical of your own work and things like that and if you you know you're gonna get criticism when you go to conferences supervisors all that stuff those can be some of the big low points because it's it's hard to pick yourself back up and keep going with something when you're you know not consistently shot down but you know when you're hard on yourself and um you think you're not really making progress even though you are the whole time that's possibly some of the low points um personally for me i suppose i did the phd in, in, in its uh first year or two unfunded as well so i was kind of working on the side too at that time and that's that that's a tough thing to, to, to ask of people you you know you kind of let go of humanity a small bit by working so much half on the phd and half on work um and obviously when our funding came in there it was a huge um, high so you know there was there's obviously loads of highs and lows um other high elements i suppose again look i'm lucky enough to have a publication under my belt um and that was that was a huge fantastic achievement for myself and my supervisory team to be able to say look yeah the research has you know real recognition in the international community that it's um it's valuable um so that was definitely a high there along with funding and things like that but yeah i don't look I, I, others might have different opinions on it but they're definitely a roller coaster is the way i describe it yeah mm. and tracy do you have anything different i guess in terms of your laws um or challenges or obstacles i definitely agree with connor in terms of the feedback i suppose that's initial shock for any student where they think they've created a great piece of work and they get it back and not, not so much the case but that's that's work in progress you know phd is three or four years for everyone so that's something you just have to take on board at the start and get used to it and you know progress from that i suppose as well before i start phd as my only concern would be would it be a very isolated project would it be essentially a lonely project as people said to me that that would be their concern and you know, to be honest it hasn't been 
I suppose the PhD, there's such variety in the day-to-day work as in, I suppose today we're doing this, a podcast, three of us together. And there's teaching experience in most of the departments as well, which gives me an opportunity to go out and meet the students and be involved in the community of the college. And that that adds an awful lot to the, the day-to-day work life. It gives great variety. And I think that's been a big plus as well, which I initially would have been worried about. Okay. And Mara, have you anything extra? Well, I think indeed, you know, it can seem like there's an endless amount of work um, still ahead of you. Um, like Connor said, sometimes you have the feeling you go forward, but actually you find out later you've been moving a few steps back. Um, so I think it's important to have the right mentors around you, uh, a supervisor um, who can help you out with that, but also PhDs who might be further on in their journey um, can help you with that. Um, and another aspect that um, I find challenging is Um, At this stage, I'm halfway through my PhD, I'm collecting my data, and for that I am following um, some social enterprises in the way they make a new organizational strategy, which means I'm really dependent on what happens in those organizations, um, and also at the pace at which it happens in those organizations. So it can feel very uncomfortable that this important part of your research, is the data that you get in to work with, um, is actually for a very large part completely out of your control Uh, and especially if you have funding for a certain period you know there can be uh, a bit of tension there so um, I think you constantly have to be mindful you know you you work very hard in in the first year or the first years on making a plan and trying to figure out what are you going to look at and how are you going to look at that but once you you know find yourself in the reality of the world out there it's always a lot messier than than it looked on paper um, so, yeah, you constantly have to find ways to deal with that when you're collecting your data and, you know, keep your end goal in mind. But at the same time, also let it happen the way it happens naturally within the organizations. Yeah, no, as in listening to the three of you does bring me back um, to, to those days myself. And, I, you know, it does, you know, again, talks, I suppose, the importance of supervision and good supervision and who, who's around you. Um, equally, I think it always reminds me, of, unfortunately, academia is one of those professions that are were said that we get more rejection than positives. And it's back to the importance of taking them all. Um, so, I, and equally, I suppose, back to, you know, your point, Emma, is that we don't control everything and we're often at the mercy of others particularly when it comes to that data collection and and access so anybody listening um that we approach you for access let us in please um maybe just one final question then in terms of you know people listening in that are kind of oh do i want to do a phd maybe maybe not what what advice would you give to somebody that's you know potentially thinks that they want to do a phd but are unsure mara yeah i think it's important to Um, First of all, be clear about your motivation, like why do you want to undertake this project? Because it's a big project um, and it does take up a big amount of time and energy for a couple of years of your life. So you need to be willing to invest that. Um, And I think be very, um, uh, try to figure out what are the the surroundings you do that PhD in. Because what I said for me, having that international network behind me is very beneficial. Um, Getting an idea of the school, the department that you're in, do they organize these research seminars? Do they organize network opportunities? Uh, Because indeed, I think otherwise it can end up being a lonely uh, project. But if you beforehand can get an idea of what are those structures in place uh, that you can avail of, um, that will greatly help you. Um, and also, I think, benefit the enjoyment you get out of it. 
Tracy? Try and speak to as many people as possible. So speak to current students, maybe speak to former lecturers, because you never know, they might have ideas for projects or have uh, funding in the pipeline that uh, the student could get involved in. Or else you could go to um, events like the PhD Symposium that was ran this year in May. Uh, so that was an opportunity to look at all the current research projects that are going on in the business school. So again, that's a good opportunity to just get a feel for what a PhD, what's involved in a PhD and what the experience might be like for that person. Connor? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point is to talk to people. Um, like I know uh, personally a friend of mine who is starting a PhD in, in the business school has has done that to a T, you know, talked to a number of people for a couple of months. Um, very passionate about his area and, you know, really got a sense of what it's about and has set himself up well for the next couple of years. And once you are realistic about what's going to be ahead of you that's probably really important I think when you're starting out um, just to, I suppose an additional point and this is from a personal journey myself is you know the funding aspect of it is really important it does give you that not safety net but reassurance in terms of you know not having to work outside of it and things so my advice would always be to, to you know look at funding whether it's internally here obviously we have great scholarships available for um, students thinking of doing them here in um, the business school but also look externally um, you know Maris talked there about you know European Union um, you know funding a number of projects um, the Irish Research Council. You now I've had one of those myself, um, and and you know Science Foundation. There's a there's a lot of different bodies there, so have a look at those as well. And I think going to different events and really just just scoping out the field and what's there, you know, find out exactly what's ahead of you. That's probably the most important bit of advice you'd give to anybody. Because look, I think we'd all agree it's a tough journey, but it is a very fulfilling one, really. I think you know at the end of it, coming towards the end now, so I can say that hopefully. But um, you know, it's 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 been interesting, and I don't look. You're never going to do something like it again. I think that's. The main thing, you know, a PhD is really unique and it's, you know, it can be, as I said, a roller coaster, but it's something you'll probably look back on and say, you know, I'm really glad I did that, regardless of how it works out. So, yeah. Also, thanks very much for coming in and both sharing your insights on your own research projects in three different, but there's actually interrelationships between them all in some shape or form and obviously just um, your, your overall experience of the PhD. That's all we have time for on this episode of Insights, the Cubs UCC podcast. And my thanks to Mara Van Twyver, Tracy Bradfield and Connor Drummond for joining me on the show. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And join me next time for new ideas, research and perspectives on Ireland and the world from us here at Cubs UCC. Thanks for listening.